in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it is that great chapter of love. Now, if you remember, there's a specific section in the book of Corinthians that we are dealing with. Anybody recall what that is? Don't leave me hanging up here. What are, what are we dealing with? Chapters 12, 13, and 14. What is the whole section, chapters 12, 13, and 14, for the last seven weeks we've been dealing with? What is it? Well, that's one aspect of it, but it's the spiritual gifts, right? Chapters 12 is one slice of the bread. Chapters 14 is the other slice. And wedged right in the middle is this chapter on love. So chapter 12 deals with the theology of spiritual gifts. You guys awake today? Two of us are awake? Okay, good. So chapter 12 deals with the theology of spiritual gifts. It's the who's, the what's, the where's, the why's, and the how's. The Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts. He gives them to every single believer. So if you're a Christian truly born again, you possess spiritual gifts. They differ. They differ in in strength or capability, capacity, and they also differ each one of us in calling. But we all are many members, a part of how many bodies? One. And so we all matter. Whether you're a hand or a foot or an eye or a, or a thumb, it doesn't matter. You all matter. And everybody and uh, bringing their gifts cumulatively makes the body thrive. And it is an amazing thing when the church is of one accord, working and executing as each member uses their spiritual gifts for God's glory. Now, chapter 14, we'll start that next week, is dealing with the warning of abusing spiritual gifts. Do people abuse the pulpit? Absolutely. You have starving congregations and their pastors are flying around in private jets. There's a whole bunch of an abuse when it comes to the church. People abuse their giftedness for personal or the Bible says sordid gain. And so we are warned to not abuse our spiritual gifts. So one side, theology of gifts. The other side, you're dealing with the abuse of gifts and bam smack in the middle is the meaty good stuff. It is the chapter on love. It is the motivation behind why we use our spiritual gifts. So recalling a couple weeks back, and there's an outline for you. Remember, Paul starts off the foundation of the chapter with the necessity of love. Do you remember that? He starts the whole thing off with love is paramount. Now, remember the COVID times? There was these things called essential and non-essential businesses. Uh, apparently, mom and pop shops were not essential, but strip clubs and liquor stores, they were essential. Well, Paul starts off chapter 13 by telling us that love is essential. That God is love. We are born of God. Therefore, what are the children of God to do? Love. It is a non-essential, non-negotiable virtue. It is, in fact, the chief virtue of the Christian life. We are called to love and to love and to love. So if I exercise my gifts and I don't love, Paul says I'm nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I prophesy and give all the words of wisdom and I don't have love, it doesn't profit me anything. If I take all my possessions and I sell them to the poor and I don't love, it means absolutely nothing. I'm nothing more than just a broke person. And if I lay my life down as a martyr and I don't have love, I'm nothing more than a statistic. Basically, love is absolutely paramount in the life of the Christian church. Last week, we looked at the nature of love. 
And that is the definition or what are the qualities of love? And we discussed that love is sacrificial, volitional, meaning I have to do. It's an act of the will. It is uh, sacrificial, merciful, and it characterizes God perfectly. That's why Jesus says, let your light so shine before the world that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. As we love one another and as we love God, God's light will ruminate and illuminate the earth and people will ultimately see the character of God. You become then the people into heaven. As you love, people can look at you and they get a glimpse of what God can or is like. It's an amazing truth. Now, the biblical definition, and I'll read it for you in 1 Corinthians 13, is love is patient. And we looked at that last week, that it's long-suffering. Love is kind, is not jealous. Love does not brag, is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul lists 15 characteristics of what love is like, eight of what it isn't, and seven of what it is. And now we get into verses 8 through 13, and he closes out this chapter on love with the permanency and supremacy of love. What he's saying is love is essential, and love is here to stay. Basically, everything that we know of this life and what life is like and spiritual gifts and characteristics and all that we know will ultimately be done away with. But what will remain in the end is this agape, this sacrificial type of love that Paul is telling us uh, here in chapter 13. So turn on or turn to 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to take verses 8 through 13, beginning with the permanency of love. Verse 8 says, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. So Paul starts off with these three famous words, love never fails. And that becomes the thesis for the rest of the chapter, as he's now going to bounce ideas off of that one statement. He's going to take spiritual gifts and show how they ultimately will fail. He's going to take these great Christian virtues down in verse 13 and show how they ultimately fail, but that love will remain to the end. And the words he uses in Greek, is they're very poetic. They're very picturesque. He he uses a phrase that really brings things to the imagination. Love never fails. It describes two things. One, a beautiful building that ultimately becomes dilapidated, and two, a flower that withers away. And that's that Greek phrase that he uses here for love never fails. So picture a brand new home. I mean, who doesn't love a brand new home? You walk in, it smells fresh, it's light and bright. It just, it's amazing. You don't have to worry about if it's going to leak in the winter time. You know, the roof is going to leak. You don't have to worry about the, the water heater bursting or the plumbing. I don't have to worry about if the foundation is sagging with a brand new home. There's just no worries. It's a beautiful thing. This idea of love never fails is that beautiful home that ultimately becomes dilapidated. So you take that brand new home and let's fast forward 500 years, 
right? That home is probably going to fall. And that's the Greek word. It's to dilapidate until the point where it collapses. Love never collapses in that way. The roof never leaks. The water heater never goes out. The plumbing never gives out. The foundation never shakes. It ultimately stands and will not fall. The second picture is a flower. Think of a beautiful orchid or a rose or I don't know many flowers, but think of a nice pretty flower. And you look at the petals and they're colorful and they're vibrant. They're full of life. You look at the middle, the little pistols are all unique and different. The stems, if you really examine a flower, it's amazing. And then many flowers give off a beautiful perfume type smell. Then what happens with that flower? It dies. And that's the word fail, is to decay to the point where it withers away and its leaves fall off. So if you think of Beauty and the Beast, there's that rose inside of that glass little jar. And at the beginning, it's beautiful. And towards the end of the movie, it's completely decayed and all the petals are falling off. Paul is saying love is as beautiful as this beautiful building that's brand new or as gorgeous as a beautiful blooming flower. And the beauty of it is that it never becomes dilapidated and it never withers away. Love never fails. There's a guy in the the 1900s. He was a, a reverend. He was also a psychologist and he was also um well, a physician. Talk about like not knowing where you're going in life, right? But he was a lot of different things. And his name was George W. Crane. He was also a newspaper columnist, columnist for like 60 years. And George W. Crane had a woman come in that he was counseling. And she answers the door and she says, I hate my husband. I want a divorce. I can't stand him, but I'm here to ask, how can I hurt him the most? I want him to be in pain just like he has caused me so much pain. And so uh, Dr. Crane is sitting there and listening to this woman who's vehemently telling him how she wants her marriage to end. And Dr. Crane says, I, I have a plan for you. For six weeks, love him unconditionally. I want you every time he's hungry to cook his meals. I want you every time he's down to uplift him. I want you with his good personality traits to compliment him. I want you to have his back and not tear him down. In every way, I want you to love him with an unfailing love. And after six weeks, then tell him, drop the bomb and say, I want to get a divorce. I'm leaving you. And he will be so hurt and so crushed you know, that he'll be crying for you back. And her eyes got big and she gets that little grin on her face and she says, I'm going to do it. So they schedule a meeting for six weeks and six weeks later, she's a no call, no show. Seven weeks later, no call, no show. Eight weeks later, no call, no show. And he says, I'm going to phone in. So he calls her house and she picks up and he says, so what's up? Did you go through with the divorce? And she said, quote, divorce, that's the furthest thing from our mind. Doctor, an interesting thing happened. As I began to love my husband, I began to actually love my husband. And then he started loving me back. And next thing I know, we're more in love today than when we first got married. You see, love never fails. Psychologists fail. Counseling fails. Marriages fail, love never fails. And this is what Paul is driving home, that it never becomes dilapidated and never ultimately decays and is thrown away. Then he shows how spiritual gifts do. 
And notice the spiritual gifts that he uses in verse 8b and following. He says, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. And if there is knowledge, it will be done away. Now, what is the interesting thing about all three gifts that Paul uses here? Can you see something that is in common with all of them? Prophecy, tongues, and the word of knowledge. What what do all of those three things have in common? What is it? They're speaking gifts. They're gifts of the mouth. They're gifts that can can draw attention. Now, remember, he's writing to the Corinthians, and what city is the do the Corinthians live in? Corinth. Now, what do we know about Corinth? Here's some interesting facts about Corinth that is really germane to this idea. Because they were a pompous, show-off kind of town. They were like Broadway meets Las Vegas. That was ancient Corinth. They had a lot of things going on where the culture bled into the church and that kind of show-off mentality was vibrant. So they had a temple known as the, to the Temple of Aphrodites. And that was one of the eight wonder, ancient wonders of the world. People from all over the world would come and visit that place. Another thing they had was the Isthmian Games. It was the second largest game in the entire world. Anybody know what the first one was? The Olympics. Have you heard of that before? So you had the Olympics, which was number one, and then you had the Isthmian Games, which was the second largest on the planet. Then it was a trade city. It was a financial hub for the Roman Empire. You had all of these things going on on top of many, many, many theaters. So Corinth was really this hub of the showtime. It was like Lakers in the 80s, right? It was the, it was just showtime. That was Corinth. Now that mentality bleeds into the church. And what do you have? You have these speaking gifts which are being abused because Oh, I have a speaking gift. Now I'm the pastor. I'm front and center. Oh, I have a speaking gift. All eyes on me. Oh, I want the limelight. And so what you had was a church that was so confused. And what you had a church was everybody wanting to be the head honcho. It's like that saying too many chiefs, not enough Indians or too many chefs in the kitchen. There was everybody trying to be the person in the front. So if you look at chapter 14, and verse 26, and we'll start digging into this next time, but chapter 14, verse 26, Paul writes, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm. So here we got some people wanting to be worship leaders. They're the Richards of the church, and they're saying, I have music that I can bring forth to the church. Others has teachings. So there were people who had the gift of teaching that said, I'm the next Apollos, I'm the next Paul, I'm the next Peter. Then uh, each one has a revelation. They're saying, I have, I'm a prophet from God. Others has a tongue and an interpretation. And then Paul says, let all things be done for edification. So what happens when everybody wants to be the worship leader, the teaching pastor, everybody wants to speak a word from God, everybody wants to speak a tongue, and everybody wants to interpret? Look at verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So what do you have in the church? Confusion, chaos. It was charismatic chaos. The whole place was just in an uproar trying to show off their spiritual gifts. Paul in chapter 13 is saying, listen, if you really want to major in the majors and not the minors, what you need to do is major in love and not these 
these spiritual gifts for personal satisfaction. Why? Because spiritual gifts are going away. Now he uses three. First one is prophecy. And this is the ability to preach and teach God's word publicly. Before the Bible was written, you had the office of the prophet. And they would go and they would say, thus says the Lord. And they would prophesy, speaking God's truth publicly. Then the word of God is written. And in the New Testament, you see this idea of prophecy being forth telling God's word, going back and publicly proclaiming what God has said. That gift, that office will be done away with. That word or the phrase uh, here, they will be done away is one Greek word and it means out of order. So last night we were at John's Incredible Pizza and I can't tell you how many machines were out of order. You put the little card in out of order, out of order, out of order. What does it mean to be out of order? It doesn't work. It's shut down. It once was, but no longer is functioning. That's what Paul is saying with this gift of prophecy. It's out of order. Then he goes to the gift of tongues, which is the supernatural ability to proclaim God's glory in a language that you don't know. That will one day cease. Then he goes to the third one, the words of wisdom. That's the natural, supernatural ability through the Holy Spirit to know the deep things of God. So when you look at Christendom, like the Calvins of the world and how deep they go on their theology, and it's like, how do these guys possibly go that deep when it comes to the things of God? They guaranteed have the gift of wisdom and the, the gift of the words of knowledge. That too will be out of order. They will be done away with. So the question then becomes, why? Look at verse 9 through 12, and Paul tells us, for we know in part... And we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. So he's saying right now we prophesy or we preach and we teach in part, meaning we don't know everything. So I can't believe it, but this year is going to be 13 years since I started preaching, which is like to me just mind blowing. I got saved in September of 2010 and I started preaching November 3rd, 2010. In six weeks after I got saved, I was in the parks preaching, teaching the word of God. What did I know? I knew the gospel. That's it. I was prophesying, preaching and teaching in part. Did I know everything of this book? Absolutely not. In fact, were there more things I didn't know than what I did know? Absolutely. I was exercising my gift in part. Do I know this book today thoroughly? No. Are there more things I don't know than what I do know? Probably. I am still exercising my gift in part. Words of wisdom and other speaking gifts and other spiritual gifts in part because we are fallen. We don't know God fully and we can understand that. How can a finite mind, this meat calculator, fully comprehend the infinite God? It's impossible. It's logically and and practically impossible. And Paul is saying right now, we are exercising these spiritual gifts in part. Now they're not bad. We'll see next week, Paul says in chapter, in verse one, four and five, that prophesying is great. And then he says, I wish that you all speak in tongues. So he's not knocking the gifts. He's just saying they're temporal, but love is eternal. And this is why they're temporal. Look at verse 10. But when the perfect comes, 
the partial will be done away. So he's talking about a coming epoch or a coming era. He's talking about something in the future that is coming that will radically change the way we do business now, spiritually speaking. So what in the world is he talking about? So Monique got this answer right about six weeks ago, so we'll see if anybody else can get it. There are three major slices to our salvation, three major steps or processes by which we are saved, the salvific process. And they are all the shins. Does anybody remember the process? What's the first one? What is it? That's the second. What's the first slice of the pie? Come on. No. The process of salvation begins with what? It's a shin. Nope. Which one? Justification. So Monique got it right and told her husband. Justification. <laughs> She's a good wife supporting her husband. Justification. That is the process of God declaring you judicially set free. Not only are you forgiven, the, the, the court documents of you ever sinning before him are gone. They've been completely eradicated. It been, is it expunged? Something like that? Your, your, uh, Gosh, now I'm drawing a blank. Your record of sin is gone. As far as the East is from the West, God as the judge judicious, judicially declares you righteous. Justification, just as if I have never sinned. You are right before God. And then the Holy Spirit fills you, seals you, and gives you spiritual gifts. It's also known as being born again. So you're this little baby now in the hands of the Lord. You're this little bitty bitty newborn babe. That's justification. But the Bible says we want you to grow into the full stature of Christ. We don't want you to stay a newborn babe still on milk. Remember chapter 3? The Corinthians, they were being chided by Paul because they were still on the milk of the word. He says, because you are fleshly, I want you to be on the milk. He wants to get to the big things of Christianity, but he has to keep going back to the little baby things because they weren't getting it. They weren't growing. So that second stage of salvation is called what, Maria? sanctification. And what's sanctification? Christian maturity. It's going from the newborn babe into the person of Jesus Christ. That is what we know as spiritual growth, growing in grace. That's step number two. That's where we exercise our gifts for God's glory. That's why the pastors always say, read your Bible every day, pray every day, fellowship, all of those things aid in your sanctification, aid in your growth. But there's coming a day when you will die and you will not fully know God in totality up until that point. And then the third part of our salvific process is known as what? Anybody know? Look at this right here. Glorification. Mr. Bell got it. Glorification. And this is what Paul is referring to here in verse 10 when he says, but when the perfect comes. He's saying there's coming an epoch, an era, a season of time, this eternal state when you will be glorified and then you will see God for who he is. You will know, you will understand, everything will begin to make sense fully, not just partially. So think about this. If you want to turn to Revelation 21, this is after what we would know as a tribulation period. 
This is after what we would know as the second coming of Christ. This is even after the thousand-year millennial reign on the earth. This is even after Satan is freed. And this is even after the great white throne judgment. When, when God judges the unbeliever and anybody's name who's not written in the Lamb's book of life is cast into outer darkness. We're talking at the very end of all things. We get to Revelation chapter 21. And this is what Paul is referring to when he says this perfect coming, this time of perfection that is on the way. Now, Revelation 21, verse 1, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. So you remember, God judged the world once, but he judged everything on the world, but he didn't actually destroy the earth. Remember what that judgment was? the flood, and it was during the time of Noah. God created man, and man got uber sinful, and God judged the planet with water. And then God gives the rainbow, and he makes a covenant. And then we see that God is going to judge the earth again. This time, all of creation is going to get it, just not this earth. And this time, he's not going to judge on what's on the earth, but all of creation, not with the element of water, but with fire. In Second Peter chapter 3, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So God does away with all of creation with this blast of fervent heat or fire. He scraps the whole thing. And then in Revelation 21, he creates a new heaven and a new earth. Now look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. Now go down to verse 10 and 11. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Now look at verse 22 through 27. And I saw no temple in it. This is the holy city, this new Jerusalem. For, this is why there's no temple, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb, and the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations to it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abominations and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose name are written in the Lamb's book of life. So this new heaven, new Jerusalem, has no temple. Now think of it. Why does it have no temple? Because the Father and the Lamb, the Son, are there. Now, what was the purpose of the temple? 
It was the place where you would meet God and fellowship with God, number one. What else? What would congregants have to bring to the temple in order to get right with God? Sacrifice. So you had a guilt offering, you had a peace offering, and you had a sin offering. And you would do all these offerings to get right with God. And then what else happened in the temple? There would be worship, there would be singing of songs and praise, and then you see Jesus giving us an illustration of this. A rabbi would go up and they would open up a scroll and they would begin to read and teach from it. So the preaching and the teaching of the word of God would happen inside the temple. Now look at Revelation 22. Just file those in your mind for a second. Revelation 22 and verse 1. And then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were the healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of his lamb will be in it and his bond servants will serve him. <clears throat> Who are the bond servants? We are. Now look at verse four, because this is germane to what Paul is talking about. They will see his face. Who's the they? The bond servants. Who are the bond servants? Us. We will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of a, the light of a lamp nor of the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Why has nobody seen God face to face presently? Because we are finite and sinful. We cannot have it. We cannot contain it. It would be like, why can I not stand on the face of the sun? It is physically impossible. Same with God. When Moses saw the passing of God's glory, what happened to Moses? His face shone like the sun, but then it began to fade away because he couldn't maintain God's glory. Now, with all that in mind, one more passage and we'll tie it together. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice we're waiting for the Savior. When the Savior comes, look at verse 21. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. The word transform is meta schemazo. What does meta mean? They changed Facebook to meta. What does meta mean? Large, beyond, greater than. And what does schemazo mean? We get the word schematics. What is a schematic? A blueprint, a diagram, a plan. Metaschemazo means it goes beyond the diagram. You see, this body, it's amazing, but it has limitations. The Lord is going to transform our bodies to go beyond the plan or blueprint this body was intended for so that we will be like him. In other words, we will have a glorified body. 
Now look at this coming perfected state. There will be a new heaven. There will be a new earth. Why will there be no need for a temple? We don't need a go to go to a building to fellowship with God. Why? We're there face to face with him. Now take that even further. When you think of sacrifice, why do we not need to bring a sacrifice to God during that time? Because Christ is there. He's our lamb, our eternal sacrifice. And there is no more sin. There is no more guilt. There is no more pain. There are no more tears for the former things have passed away. Now, why is it that we won't be there hearing then preaching and teaching of the word of God? In other words, why won't we need somebody exercising the gift of prophecy and telling me what God is like? Why won't we need someone exercising the gift of tongues and glorifying God in a foreign language? Why won't I need somebody to have the word of knowledge to be able to enlighten me about God? Because we'll be there face to face with God. This is Paul's point. You are going to be face to face with your creator and all things perfect for an eternal state. It's the coming perfection. Therefore, there's no need for prophecy. You don't need somebody like me to tell you about the Bible. You're going to have the creator who wrote the Bible right there. You're not going to need to glorify God in some foreign tongue you don't know because you will glorify him in a tongue you do know. You don't need the words of wisdom because you will know God just as he has known you. Look at verse 11 and 12. Paul drives this point even further. Going back to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 11 and 12. Notice the tenses too are very important. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Paul gives two illustrations. One is a child and the other is a poorly reflective mirror. So if you think of a child, you can go and teach them all the doctrine you have obtained in Christianity, all the theology. You can take everything you've learned and pour into that five-year-old. Do you think that five-year-old is going to be able to retain everything? Why? It, the child doesn't have the capacity to do that. That's Paul's point. It's not the teacher. It's not God revealing who he is. It's the fact that we can't fully grasp it. Now think of the reflective, a poorly reflective mirror. It's not the person standing in front of the mirror that's at fault. It's the mirror's fault for not being able to take that information and perfectly reflect that information back. Why? Because the mirror can't do it. God has revealed himself, but you and I can't fully grasp it. And here's the good news. It's not just us. If you turn to John chapter 3 really quickly, it's not just us. It's even really, really smart Bible people can't grasp it. In John chapter 3, verse 3, it's the first appearance of Nick at night. As Nicodemus comes to Jesus at, in the nighttime, and Jesus says this in verse 3. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? 
And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Notice Jesus response, verse 10. And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? And you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man." So here you have this great teacher of Israel, and he's not even comprehending what in the world Jesus is teaching. And Jesus is teaching very simple human things that he can grasp, and he's still not getting. He says, if you're not getting that, imagine when I go to the real heavy-duty weights, the the Shekinah glory and the the meaty things of, of heaven. How are you even going to grasp that? So Paul is saying, we are like children. We are like a mirror that is not reflective well. And notice verse 12, going back to our text. For when we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. And that's Revelation 22, 4. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Think of this for a second. How well does God know you? The Bible says he's numbered your days, so he knows how long you live. The Bible says he knows the hair on your head. Now, some of us, you know, that's kind of easy. Most of us, God knows the hair on your head. God also knows every tear that you've shed. God knew you and formed you in your mother's womb. God chose you for salvation before the foundations of the earth. How well does God know you? He knows you infinitely. He knows you infinitely. And Paul says, you will know God just as he knows you. So how much will you know God? Infinitely. This is Paul's point. You're not going to need a a teacher. You're not going to need an interpreter with tongues. You're not going to need the gift of wisdom when we are in that perfect coming state. Paul's point is love is permanent. Everything else, especially spiritual gifts, are temporal. They're temporary. Don't major in the minors. Now we'll finish with his last point. Love is supreme the supremacy of love. So you have the necessity of love, the nature of love, the um, permanency of love. And then verse 13, you have the supremacy of love. He goes from spiritual gifts into now characteristics or traits or virtues. And he pulls out the heavy hitters. In verse 13, you have three heavyweight champions. These are all paramount in the Christian walk. And he he's having them slug it out. And who wins? Love. Look at verse 13. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three. He's not saying the, the other two are, are not important. 
what he's saying is, be in faith, be in hope, be in love, but know this, the greatest of these is love. Now the question is, why? And it's because love never fails, it never decays and ceases, but faith will and hope will. You say, what do you mean? Now, faith is uber important. Would you agree? It's paramount to the Christian life. What is faith? If you turn to Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction, that's the Greek word evidence, of things not seen. So there's no such thing as blind faith. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Like physics, there are laws of physics and we can't actually see the laws of physics in action, but the evidences are there to show that they are true. If I throw this Bible up in the air, what happens? It's going to fall, right? It's not going to go up forever. It's going to fall. We know that to be true, even though we can't see the gravitational force right now with our own two eyes. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. It is absolutely essential. Now, without faith, can you be saved? Absolutely not. Faith is essential for salvation. We know that in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is essential for salvation. This is the third thing about faith. It is a gift of God. Look at verse uh, uh, 9. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So faith is the evidence of things not seen, essential for salvation, a gift from God. And now look at uh, Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. So if you remove faith, you're not a child of God. You cannot please God. There's nothing you can do to put a, a smile on God's face. It is absolutely essential. And the Bible says we walk by and not by, nope, we walk sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. That's how it is right now. Let's fast forward to the glorification stage. We walk by sight because who do we see face to face? And not by faith. What, what do we need the evidence of things not seen when we have the creator face to face? Right now, we walk by faith, not by sight. In that time, we will walk by sight and no longer by faith because the evidences will be there in plain sight. So faith ultimately fails. There's a moment when it decays, it becomes dilapidated and is no longer useful. Now look at hope. Hope is not wishing upon a star. Hope is not saying, well, I, I hope I win the lottery someday with no assurance. Hope, biblical hope, is the absolute assurance of coming good. It means it hasn't happened yet, but I know it will. So if we all go to the Laker game, is it still the sta Staples Center? What is it? Okay, the crypt, if we go to the crypto center, is it what that, what it's called? Anyway, we go to the, watch the Laker game and they're up third, they're up 30 points with 30 seconds to go in the game. Fourth quarter, they're up 30 points, 30 seconds to go in the game. And I say, well, I hope they win. Now that's a correct statement because it, it is the absolute assurance that they will win. Now have they won yet? No. 
So hope is something that is not fully realized yet. I know it's coming. It will come. It's a guarantee it is coming, but it hasn't happened yet. The final buzzer hasn't rang. The game is not officially over. So while I'm playing the game, I hope. And that gives perseverance and so on and so forth. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is that glory? What is he referring to? That time that we've been talking about in Revelation 21 and 22. He says the struggles are real right now, but they're going to be nothing compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. And it's not only us, it's all of creation. That's why God does away with it all. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the create, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, who's the glory of the children of God? It's the bond servants who have been glorified, who see and serve God face to face. For we know the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our, and who's right there? Who has that word? Body. Remember Philippians 3, uh, 3.21? We will be meta-schemazo. We will have a body that goes beyond the body that we have. That's that time that our bodies will be redeemed. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. So if I win the lottery, do I hope I win the lottery? I've already won it. And that's the idea. Hope is the absolute coming expectation of good, but it's not realized. Now go back to our text. Think about hope. When I see God face to face, has it been fully realized? Has my glorification come to a completion? Yes. So I no longer hope for that which I see. You see that? Love is still prevalent. Hope is not. Because hope has come to its end. Faith, amazing and important, will be done away with. Hope, amazing and important, will be done away with. Love remains forever. Does that make sense? All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you, God, for the necessity and the nature and the permanence and the supremacy of love. And God, I just pray that we can love like that, that we can turn the other cheek, that when we're commanded to go one mile, we go two. I pray, God, that those who hate us and spitefully use us, we can return love instead. And God, these are all things that are foreign 
and unnatural to us. In our fallenness, in our flesh, we want retaliation. We are like that woman who wants to cause maximum pain to those who hurt us. And yet, God, I pray that we would be more like Christ, that when people are blaspheming and hurting us, we would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God, this is the love you've commanded us to do. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And in this, all of the law and the prophets hinge on. If I love, I will not covet. If I love, I will not disobey my parents. If I love, I will not have any foreign gods. If I love, I will not murder, cheat, and steal. God, love is the answer. And so, Father, as Christians, I pray that we can repent of those thoughts and actions that were unloving towards others and towards yourself. Every time I sin, God, I am unloving towards you. And so I pray by your Spirit and through the teaching of the Word of God and through my own personal study and through personal prayer and through fellowship of the church and through exercising our gifts and through evangelism and all the things you've called the church to do that we can grow into the person and stature of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, one day, we will be like you in glory. Until then, God, may we be the window into heaven by which people see our good works and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.